Welcome to this bonus episode of Better Off Dead, a replay of Radio National's Big Ideas program recorded in April 2021 at Melbourne's Wheeler Centre. It features former voluntary assisted dying conscientious objector, oncologist Dr Philip Parente, chair of the Assisted Dying Review Board, Justice Betty King, terminally ill shepherd and man Ron Poole and myself in discussion, expertly moderated by Paul Barclay. It's a fascinating conversation, made all the more poignant by the knowledge that Ron, who died only a week later, chose to spend some of his final hours helping us understand what the choice offered by Victoria's law meant for him. This is Big Ideas. I'm Paul Barclay. In 2017, Victoria became the first state in Australia to enact legislation to allow those with an incurable illness to choose to hasten the end of their life. The law came into effect in June 2019, and since then, more than 220 Victorians have died as a result of accessing the law. As things currently stand, Victoria is the only state where voluntary assisted dying is an option for people with a terminal illness. Western Australia and Tasmania have passed similar laws, but they're yet to take effect. Other states are currently considering the issue and are likely to vote on it in the next year or so. But after two years of operation in Victoria, how are the laws working? And where is the debate at? This was the subject of a recent discussion at the Wheeler Centre, which brought together a panel of speakers. Andrew Denton is one of our most creative and talented TV broadcasters and producers. He's the founder of Go Gentle Australia and advocates for better end-of-life choices in Australia. He hosts the podcast Better Off Dead, which has just launched its second season. Justice Betty King QC is chairperson of the Voluntary Assisted Dying Review Board and a former judge of the Supreme Court of Victoria. Associate Professor Philip Parenti is a medical oncologist and the Director of Cancer Services for Eastern Health. And our other speaker is Ron Poole. Ron has idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and has elected to pursue voluntary assisted dying after receiving a prognosis of having less than six months to live. Just a warning before we begin. This discussion deals with death and dying and people choosing to die in certain circumstances. If this conversation raises any issues for you, there are resources and support services available, including a 24-7 crisis support phone line from Lifeline. The number is 131 114. You can also find more information, links and phone numbers on the Better Off Dead website. Philip, I'll come to you first of all, being the only medical practitioner on our panel. How do you think the laws have been working, what would be your your verdict on the first two years or so of people being able to access them? I think the laws initially, people accessing the legislation uh, was difficult, but as the information that was disseminated amongst the public became more evident, uh, patients really came to us as doctors, and for me, medical oncologists, my cancer patients, uh, were asking about voluntary sister dying. Initially, I think there were barriers 
which most hospitals uh, encountered, but only because we didn't really implement the laws well. There was an implementation issue, uh, but um, most hospitals took it on board and patients have been able to access it uh, in a very swift way and have enabled navigators, voluntary assisted dying navigators. There's the central navigators, but most hospitals now have their own navigator where we contact these people to help patients navigate the the many safeguards that we need to go through to access uh, the, the the medication. So I think it's working well. Mm. It can always work better. In medicine, we always can do things better. Uh, but uh, it's becoming increasingly uh, more of an option that I've seen. Uh, we're getting increasingly busier as um, volunteers to dying assessors, uh, and therefore that will always pose another issue with the legislation. It, it's still a new thing, and we know that many in the medical establishment opposed these laws, still oppose these laws. How much of a problem is that and does that continue to be? Well, my speciality, medical oncology, is fractured because of it. I can tell you that now. Uh, We did a a survey um, and uh, there's 50% really for and 50% opposed. We split down the middle and that was published. And, um, And good friends have probably become lesser good friends, because of our views on knowledge assisted dying. It has really, I think, uh, split our, our profession, our relationship with palliative care. People who are pro-knowledge assisted dying can't see the views of some palliative care physicians or institutions. Um, so there, re- there, are, there are new issues to address and, uh, and to discuss and come to a common ground. Andrew, you've uh, spoken to so many people about this, people who have availed themselves of, of, of the law. Uh, what are your thoughts? Is it, is it working well? Do enough people have access to the laws? What, what would be your view? Well, if you go by the frame of the parliamentary debate and, and the, the claims that were made about the terrible things that would happen once a law like this came in, yes, it's working very well. Absolutely none of the things that were suggested would happen, that the safeguards wouldn't work that people would be coerced, that it would be easy to access, have turned out to be true. So in that regard, it's working really well. It, and also in a historical regard in that before vi- the Victorian Parliament made this choice, uh, made this decision, the gifts of choice and the gifts of release available to terminally ill people were not available in any state in Australia. So uh, that's a huge step forward. And this is a long conversation and we'll continue about end-of-life care right across the medical community and the community at large. So this was a really, really important step uh, that has changed the conversation, not just here but in Australia. In terms of access, and, and, and Philip's spoken to it and Betty, I'm sure, will speak to this more, the law was written deliberately very conservatively. We have some of the MPs here tonight that were responsible for passing the law and they would remember well why the, uh, I think it was touted as the most conservative law of its kind in the world with 68 safeguards. That was necessary politically for it to do so. But the the result has been not just because of the law, but because of what Philip talked about, which is that many doctors have been reluctant to get involved or or strongly disagree so that there um, still aren't a lot of doctors who are uh, accredited to assess people for assisted dying. But uh, the result has been that it hasn't, it, it, and Ron will talk to this too, it is a very difficult law to access and for some people it's been prohibitively difficult and I think it's, it is indicative of that is to this point, uh, based on Betty's last report, almost a third of the people that legally get this medication so they, they have the necessary 
illness and they've passed all the qualifications, they are, um, it's voluntary, they're mentally competent, all those hoops they've gone through, they actually die before they get the medication. Now, partly that's because people come to this very late, and why is that? Because newsflash, we don't want to die. Uh, and But a lot of that is because it is, uh, it's not easy. And I, I, in small ways, Tasmania and Western Australia have passed a law based on Victoria. They have tried to make some areas easier. The law here is due for review, and I think it's three years' time. And... Uh, Look, those who oppose this law suggest that any change to it is an example of a slippery slope. But I would hope uh, an, a sensible parliament, as it would with any law, if it's, if it's looking at who is this law designed for, people who are terminally and seriously ill, and if, if the functioning of the law makes it more difficult for those people to be helped when they most need that help, uh, then maybe there are things that can and should be changed. Mm. So, Betty, you're on the board that's overseeing this terribly important job. What, what would you say needs to be improved? What recommendations, if any, would, would you make to fine-tune? We're about three years away from making the recommendations, so I really can't say precisely what they will be, but we'll be looking at access mm. as being one of the major issues. Is it more appropriate for people to actually be informed about this being a process available to them? At the moment, doctors cannot tell patients that voluntary assisted dying is available. Mm. West Australia has drawn their legislation and they have said that doctors can. So we will look at how it goes in West Australia and see if that's an improvement mm. that could help Victoria, for example. Mm. There's lots of different things. People come to this often, as Andrew says, late. And they come late because they really just haven't known about it, haven't been told about it, or are a situation of they don't want to face mortality. Mm. And then when they do come and they're very sick by that stage, it's very hard for them to access the doctors. They have to travel. They have to go to the doctors. Doctors can't use telehealth because of Commonwealth legislation. So there's a lot of impediments in, that weren't intended that I think we'll be looking at and trying to find answers for. Mm. So, Ron, I just wanted to get a bit of the background of that before I came to you, and uh, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your story, your terminal condition, if, if you don't mind talking about it, and, and why you've chosen to pursue voluntary assisted dying for yourself. Yeah, well, there's been a few points raised, and I think the biggest one is that um, not enough people know about the scheme. As you said, it's too late for some people because they haven't heard about it. So I think it needs to be out there a bit more for people to know. Now, I was diagnosed in October 18 with my condition and I had a very good talk with my physician about it and then I talked to my GP and I knew this um, program was in place. So... This is back in 18. So I went online and I found out about assisted dying then. So I knew what all the ramifications were and everything. And I was lucky that my two doctors agreed with me. So when my physician said to me, you've come into the six-month window, you can go ahead and apply for the assisted dying. So that's what I did. Mm. And um, I had to go to a uh, 
I had to have two independent doctors mm -hmm. assess me, which was two hours at, at a time. And then after they'd said, yes, you've passed all the marks, um, then the pharmacist came up with a little box and they went through a two-hour process and said, yes, you're all right. So sitting at home, I have my little black box. Whether I use it or not is my choice. The box is there now. The box is there home. now for me to use at any time. And how I use it or if I use it is entirely my choice. Mm. And I think this is the thing, as you said, people don't know about it. If you leave it too late, you're not going to pass those hurdles of those independent doctors' inquiries. Mm. And I think that's the most important thing for people to be aware of it when they do get sick, terminally sick, because if I don't have the assisted dying, I'm going to die a very painful death. And I don't want that. Mm. So this is a way for me to go. And it's a way for other people to go. Um, it's because if the illness is going to kill you, it can be very terrible death, as Andrew knows with his own father, right? And he, he would not like anyone else to go through the same thing. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And so, so that's what it's all about. Mm. Philip, just... Sorry, just uh, bearing in mind what, what Ron was saying there and the consultation with the two doctors, obviously one needs to be thorough about matters like this. How well, though, is that working? How easy or difficult is it to get the doctors to give the prognosis that then allows the patient to pursue voluntary assisted dying? So I'm a medical oncologist. So when it comes to non-cancer conditions, I can't comment. Uh, I think it's quite... Uh, easy clinically to pick a prognosis less than six months in a cancer patient. We have all our uh, scientific evidence, um, doctor's gut feeling. We've got, I've got 30 years' experience, we know. Uh, so that's not an issue, I, I, I don't think, picking prognosis. Um, and uh, and I've, I've uh, assessed patients who have not been eligible on that criteria. But I've said, look, not today, uh, but please ask me again. Or well, I will let you know because now they've asked for it again. I can open the you know open the discussion. But my biggest issue is what it's been hot echoed in you know in this panel. It's really the discussion with the patients. That's the major inhibition. Uh, the foundation of a good doctor-patient relationship is and is enabling the patient to have all the information in front of them to make an informed decision. Inhibiting us giving them this option, I think, inhibits especially marginalised groups. Uh, you have to have good access to internet or good access to social media, or, or a good grasp of the English language to know that this is around. And a lot of patients don't. And when I discuss patients, you know, third-line chemotherapy or palliative care, or we do nothing and we keep it comfortable, um, it doesn't sit well with me that I can't introduce voluntary assisted dying as an option. Um, it may not be, they may dismiss it, uh, but that's why we, when I write things down, I always write things down for my patients and I have arrows. It's, um, it doesn't sit well with me that that's not an arrow when I know that it's, it's legally available, but I'm inhibited from you know, speaking about it. So mm. I think that's a major issue. And uh, it'll be nice to see how the Western, uh, Western Australian colleagues uh, will tackle that because I think it will be tackled quite nicely and we can learn from them. And, and Betty, are we, do we have enough medically trained 
practitioners working in this field at the moment? No. No, we don't. We, that's a matter for the medical practitioners. All we can do is encourage people. But as Philip said, there is a, a schism in terms, I think particularly of the more senior clinicians, I think that schism will dissipate as younger people come on, come, become qualified. They seem to be much more, they're taught ethics, they're taught a range of things at medical school now that they probably weren't taught when the senior clinicians were being trained. And I think that will alleviate. It seems to be pretty universal that there's slow, around the world, slow uptake in terms of clinicians, but it just continues. And it has with Victoria. Our problem is regionally, we're short of doctors anyway regionally. Mm. So when you divide the doctors with that sort of schism, you've, you have a problem in terms of access for those in regional areas. Mm. And also, I mean, one of the things is it takes a lot of time, as you just heard, yeah. two hours of it, to do an assessment. It is not paid for. There is no funding for it in terms of, you know, this is not something that a doctor can charge for via government funding. Victoria does make available funds to compensate if necessary because people, if you take someone like a neurologist who needs to see someone for a neurodegenerative disease, the neurologist is based in Melbourne, the patient is in Mildura mm. and they've got to get to the patient or the patient's got to get to them. So you can talk about a complete day of someone, of a doctor's practice gone. And importantly, there's no access to telehealth no. either. My understanding is this is a federal restriction. This is something the states can't overrule. It requires federal law. It's federal law and it was brought in because of, I think, basically um, Philip Nischke. And chat rooms was how the description was in the parliament. You know, chat rooms advocating people go and kill themselves. This is not what we're talking about here. This is the will of the people. It has been voted for in our parliament. It has been adopted. The Commonwealth could do this incredibly easily by just saying legally applied voluntary assisted dying is not suicide. End of story. And then telehealth could be used. But they won't. In saying that, I think if it was if it was enabled, I think telehealth would be good in the regional areas. But I would feel uncomfortable discussing such a an important treatment avenue over the phone. I would find it difficult, and I think most assessors would. The first assessment or the first consultation face to face, and then telehealth for the subsequent ones uh, where you're really just confirming. But all telehealth, I don't, it just wouldn't sit well with me. Yeah, uh, and I'd agree with that. I think it's uh, telehealth is for the situations where it's very extreme, but one of the people I spoke to in the podcast, her mum was 82, neurodegenerative disease, and agonising two-and-a-half-hour trip to go and see a specialist and then back because she lived in regional Victoria and it would have taken two weeks for somebody to come and every day was fearful for her. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a clear situation where you'd use telehealth. But um, a lot of the doctors I've spoken to would prefer face-to-face, -face, and I think that's appropriate. And I think that's where you have a law where it can be... Uh, something like telehealth can be accessed where the situation demands it, not as a default position. Mm. Western Australia, of course, is a very big state, which is why they, their law does allow for telehealth. It'll be a very interesting question to see if the Commonwealth tries to come down on that. 
uh, easy for me to say because it's not my court case, but I'd like to see that court case run because I would like to see this resolved once mm. and for all. Essentially, the federal government's uh, still insistence that they're not going to change this law is the last rump of Kevin Andrews and the Howard government's uh, religiously led overturning of the Northern Territory law back in 96, 97, which still disenfranchises almost 700,000 Australians parliaments from discussing this issue. We're talking about voluntary assisted dying. This discussion took place at the Wheeler Centre and features Andrew Denton, Betty King, Ron Paul and Philip Parenti. I mean, we're talking really about, in a way, uh, learning from the legislation that's been passed, perhaps fine-tuning it, perhaps looking at what can be improved. But the reality is we now have Victoria, Western Australia, Tasmania with legislation. Queensland with a unicameral parliament with only one House of Parliament to get through uh, and with a government that seems inclined in that direction, looks like it will probably pass euthanasia legislation. So, so, so Andrew, we, we, there is movement on this now, uh, significant movement. Uh, is this debate over and done with now or is it just, you know, can you lock it away and it's like, you know, this sweeping through the country, you can go back to making your TV programs and uh, can your previous life resume itself now? The endless quest for the Logie that defines <laughs> my life. Yes, um, it's a dream, Paul. No, look, I think politically it's so far from over. Uh, as I said, the, the territories don't even have the right to debate this in their parliaments. Hard to believe, but true in Australia. The South Australian Parliament is about to debate this in their upper house for the 17th time. And my understanding of the numbers in the upper house right now is it's extremely tight. So it may well go down for the 17th time. The New South Wales Parliament is just welcomed to its upper house in a balance of our position, Lyle Shelton from the Australian Christian Lobby, I'll just go dot, 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 because you can imagine how that's going to go. Um, it's a very hard argument and uh, it's not helped by the fact, and, and Philip's referred to this, it is often the medical community that has led and, to my eyes, in many cases, misinformed this debate in an attempt to defend what they believe is the appropriate status quo and certainly in contradiction to the vast majority of their patients who want uh, something better and better choices. So I don't think it's over. However, even if this law is passed around Australia, the passing of this law doesn't address broader questions in end-of-life care, which aren't even necessarily to do with this law. It's partly to do with the public educating itself about advanced care directives and what it needs and, and, and planning for the end of life. And by the way, I still haven't done my advanced care directive because I'm not going to die. Um, <laughs> but it also, I think, within the medical community, uh, what I've discerned, and, um, and Philip, you may agree or disagree, is there's still... Um, there was an interesting survey done of uh, doctors in Queensland a couple of years ago and I think it was something, it was over 70% of doctors polled admitted to having given what they were considered to be futile care at the end of life. And uh, the anecdotally, the reasons doctors gave included it's easier to do that than to have the hard conversation. Mm. So I think there are broader conversations to be had within the medical community about end of life care and how it's conducted, and that's not strictly to do with this law. Mm. I mean, look, these are hard issues. Philip, you're a Catholic who long objected... Still am a Catholic. Still, still. 
you, you haven't bailed on Catholicism as a result of, uh, <laughs> of changing your mind on, uh, on voluntary assisted dying. And by the way, uh, the God will be the judge uh, if you're yeah. still a Catholic. I, 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 I totally agree. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so it's, but how, what led you to change your mind? Yeah, so, look, I will own it. I was a, an opposer. I even signed the, uh, the letter to Parliament. My name will be ever on there and I will own it. And it was probably just my Catholic upbringing you know, um, sanctity of life, you know, against abortion, against euthanasia, the, the polarised views. Um, you know, the Catholic Church has uh, really taught that us since I was in grade prep to year 12. So it was just a natural assumption that I would, you know, that I would oppose it. But I never thought the, the other view, the patient-centred view. And when the legislation was enacted and I had my first patient come to me, it challenged my own, you know, my own ethics uh, here I am, I'm really the patient's advocate and I have to treat them fairly uh, without any prejudice um, and enable them to have lawful treatment. And by saying a conscientious objector just didn't sit well with me. You know, I, I pride myself in holistic care that I'm here at the beginning of their diagnosis and at the end and at their most important time. This is not an easy decision. People think that uh, uh, going through voluntary to dying is a simple decision. It is not. They've agonised it. I've seen it. Mm. They've agonised it within themselves. Then they've agonised it with their loved ones. And by the time they come to me, I can see the, the, um, the, 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 the conflict they've had. And I can't see myself as, as being you know, potentially godlike and saying, no, I'm not doing that. I, you know, if they meet the eligibility criteria, there's many safeguards uh, that are present, um, then I will enable that. It's their choice. Uh, and uh, they may take the medication or they may not, but my role is really to be their advocate. And, Ron, what's been the response of your friends, your extended family to the decision that you've taken? They all were aware that it's been a long-held belief of mine. Um, because I, I was a farmer many years ago and had many animals. And, of course, when you've got animals, when they're sick, what do you do? You put them down. And I've always said with people who are really sick, why shouldn't they have the right choice to do that themselves? And they talk about palliative care. Yes, you can help people a long way, but there's a degree like myself where um, all the palliative care in the world is not going to help me. And when my, when my doctor said to me, when we had a good talk, I said, well, what's the bottom line? He said, you'll get to that stage where you can no longer breathe for yourself. We'll put you in a hospital on a machine. And I said, there's no way I'm going on a machine. And I was lucky enough to be living in Victoria and be able to access assisted dying. As I said, I've got it sitting at home. Mm. I've gone downhill lately and I'm, I'm looking at it three or four weeks myself before I do go. That's, I'm fully aware of it. I'm not scared of it. And I've also got the choice I don't have to use it. And that's a choice of anyone who goes on the scheme. They may get through all the hurdles, but not everyone will use it because through circumstances or ideals or whatever, they don't have a change of mind. And that's, and that's one of the good things about it, but I still think that not enough people know about it. Mm. I think that's what, one of the biggest problems. 
We're here talking about it, but there's a lot of people outside who don't know that the scheme is available. And um, as, as was said, some people leave it too late and they can't access it because you've got to have a, a mental f- facility to be able to explain to the doctors that what you want is end of life. Now, if you've gone past that stage where you can't discuss that in a forthright way, you will not pass the barriers and you'll get past. So all the, I think everything's in place to make it safe. I think it is a safe structure mm. and the hurdles are there to jump. If you can't jump them, you won't get it. What, what would happen, Betty, if a, if a medical practitioner confronted with somebody like Ron who didn't know that this was available did actually suggest in a consultation that, well, this is an option. What Are there penalties for practitioners? Yes, it's an offence under the Act. It's actually an offence, criminal offence. So And an upfront notification. Yeah. The doctors are hamstrung in many ways. Indeed. And one of the big one of the biggest problems in respect for that is people who don't have English as their first language, um, people who don't who are old, don't know about the internet, don't know how to access things. You know, even well-educated people do not know where to start. I've had friends just call me and say, look, you know, I need some help. And I just said, care navigators. But that could normally, you'd think, would be found on the internet, but they just don't know where to start. And as for those who are not well-educated, I don't know how they're going to get that information. That's right. It wasn't easy finding out the initial, like, how to do it. And I went on online and he, and Mr Google took a while before he, he gave <laughs> me the right answers. <laughs> but he did in the end and the assisted dying program, I contacted them and that's how the world started. Yeah. But as I said before, I, and I know that the assisted dying program, by law, are not allowed to advertise so it's only through podcasts like this and other ways can we promote it so people become aware of what it's all about. And I think this is where the um, issue has to be to promote it so people are aware of it. There's also uh, Victoria as a, a really excellent organisation, Dying with Dignity Victoria, who long advocated for this law and uh, are acting in an unofficial capacity as ombudsman about it and they're also there to provide information and advice. Ron mentioned before palliative care and one of the things that strikes me about this debate, and it is still a debate and there are critics out there still presumably attempting to overturn these laws and make sure that other jurisdictions don't pass them, doctors and palliative care specialists will say that there is effective pain-killing medication that alleviates suffering for everyone. So that's the so, so, so their point is that this law is not needed because this medicine can work for everyone. Now, you've spoken to people, I've heard your discussions with people on your podcast who tell the most terrible stories, distressing stories of suffering. How do we, how do we square these two different versions, these two different realities? 
It's probably what I most struggle with in this debate. When I hear uh, doctors, and sometimes they're senior doctors, make that claim, uh, I, th I feel surely they know that that is not true. I mean, put aside the fact that palliative care Australia say it's not true, put aside the fact that their own research shows it isn't true, put aside the senior palliative care doctors and nurses that have stepped forward and given evidence to parliamentary inquiries, which is accepted, to say that's not true. Just take the people like Ron that I've spoken to over the course of simply this podcast. You know, you talk about someone like Phil Ferrarotto, 70. He had a genetic predisposition to cancer. You name an organ, Phil, over 18 years, had it taken out. By the end, he still called himself Lucky Phil. By the end, his daughter described him as looking like a medical experiment and every breath was agony. And he was on a fentanyl drip, wasn't touching the sides. Palliative care for all its benefits can't help Phil. Young Alex Blaine, 28 years old, 19 rounds of chemotherapy, 19 with Ewing sarcoma. And at the end he said, I had given my body over to medical science, voluntary assisted dying, gave me my life back. And his last words were, fuck cancer, as he died. Palliative care can't help Alex Blaine. Ron, who I spoke to, Fiona McClure, who is sitting there right now with this medication out in Heathcote, who has metastatic cancer uh, throughout her body, who saw her husband over 10 painful days die despite the best of palliative care in a horrible way. Not only does she not want to risk that experience, she knows what the cancer is going to do to her. It's not just about, it's certainly not just about pain, it's about that totality of suffering. The way I describe it is think of everything that makes you you, then imagine it being stripped away one by one and knowing it's going to continue for the rest of your life. It's not going to get better. It's about being able to have some control over that, not with due respect to Philip and every other uh, medical practitioner, to have them having the say over it. And I do think that those doctors that make this claim, I wonder if they have, and I wish they would, sit down with the families of the people that have used this law and sit down with the people who have this medication and maybe they would have a very different understanding of what palliative care can do and what it means to some of the people that choose this law. I mean, palliative care is tremendously important and mm. we wouldn't want to diminish that. And I wonder, Philip, whether in part that explains the refusal to acknowledge that palliative care does not work for all end-of-life terminal cases. If not that, how do you possibly explain the fact that there are people who persist with this argument that it will alleviate suffering for everybody? That's, that's a tough question. Uh, so, you know, I would say that that, that resistance in it, it really does come from a few of the palliative care physicians, not all, but a, a few of them. Uh, I would say quite a lot of them. And the way that I see it, I haven't spoken to them about it, but the way that I see it, by validating voluntary assisted dying, it, they may see it as a way that they failed the patient. It's, it's, that's mm. how I see it. They don't want to acknowledge that. It's, it's, uh, um, it really unvalidates palliative care, which I don't think that's the case. Palliative care is just as important. Uh, and, and a lot of patients who undergo voluntary assisted dying have had excellent palliative care but they're at a different stage of their illness. Uh, and, uh, can, yeah. I just, can I just yeah, add sure. that almost 100% of the patients 
of the people who use voluntary assisted dying are still involved with the palliative care service. Yeah. Right? It's not... They don't need to be separate. It's all part of an end-of-life process. And most palliative care organisations are helpful to the person. Yeah, well, I've got to say that um, in Shepparton, where I am, I've been getting very good support from hospice, um, from other people. Um, it isn't like I've been left alone, even though they know I'm on that program, um, even though it's not their way of, of going, but they will stay with me and I've got a doctor who will be with me when that happens. So palliative care is good. I'm not, I'm not saying, yep. you know, it, shouldn't be, it should be done away with, but palliative care isn't going to answer the question for a lot of people. And, and this comes back to what I was saying earlier. This, this whole conversation is about better end-of-life care for everyone, which includes palliative care. Since this law was introduced, this government has added another $130 million to palliative care. Queensland, as part of the debate that they're about to have about assisted dying, have put $170 million into palliative care for the next six years. Um, it's, it's not an either-or and neither should it be. Mm. And, you know, I think we're... We've perhaps neatly stepped around uh, the small elephant in the room here, which is that the, the roots of palliative care are strongly Christian roots and, and in a very beautiful way, I might mm-hmm. add, and that there is a view within elements of uh, strongly Christian care that a natural death, in other words, not a hastened death, yep. that that dying process is a time of spiritual growth and it's very important and to hasten death is not only to remove that time. They use much harsher language, which is it's to abandon people and it's not to show them love, which I strongly object to. But but there's also the belief that this is that death is about God's victory over death, and mm-hmm. to take this away is is a terrible thing to do. Now they're of course, they're entirely valid beliefs. I don't uh, criticise them, but unfortunately, in states where this law doesn't exist, those. Uh, beliefs are still allowed to prevail in the mm. clinical environment because there is no great regulation of the amounts of medication given at the end of life. It's really up to what a doctor thinks is right. Yeah, I mean, there's no getting away from the fact either, Betty, that voluntary assisted dying permits the state to authorise somebody's desire to end their life under certain circumstances. This leads some critics to say that this is essentially state sanctioned killing, without the state passing this law, this would not be permissible. What would your response to that type of language be? My response to it would be that people were doing, killing themselves anyway. They were using shotguns in back sheds. They were hanging themselves from rafters. Excuse me, that's the thing that's always got to me is if you, hadn't, you haven't got this, people look at suicide and there's some terrible deaths in suicide. People, families, family members come home and find them and, and it, the whole process is so traumatic. Just look at the coroner's report in respect to this and it stopped. We're not having that anymore. I just, I, I don't understand why people don't get this part. It's voluntary. Yeah. There's also evidence that uh, we've just regulated something that was happening in an unregulated fashion within the medical profession. Having it regulated, the safeguards, it actually protects both patients and the vulnerable and doctors alike. 
we're all protected with the legislation. Uh, it did happen in unregulated practice. The evidence is there, uh, not just in Australia but worldwide. Uh, validating it via a law has protected all. And I would add that it is a, a quite carefully planted misunderstanding that we don't have laws to assist people to die before this one. We do. You can legally refuse all medication. You can legally refuse uh, stop eating and drinking. You will be given care, comfort care as you die. Um, but it is surely going to lead to your death. But it is slow. It is psychologically painful. It is often cruel. We already have a law to assist people to die. Mm. That that one still exists. Um, so it is it is wrong to think that voluntary assisted dying suddenly dramatically shifted the game. What it did is take what was already understood in law uh, and it made it far more humane and it gave uh, a far greater degree of control to the person who is dying. Andrew Denton, Betty King, Ron Paul and Philip Parenti are discussing voluntary assisted dying, in particular how the law is operating in Victoria. We're at the Wheeler Centre. Dare I say, if I asked members of the audience to think of the disease that they would least like to get, I would imagine many people in the audience would think of dementia as being the the condition that they most feared. There's lots of nodding going on at the stage here. I think we can all relate to that. Can voluntary assisted dying ever be applied to end-stage dementia, given that people who have end-stage dementia long ago lost the ability to consent to it? Andrew. Hardest part of the question, the one I get asked most often. Uh, I've, like I would imagine most people in this room, I've certainly seen what dementia can do in my extended family. I'll answer by talking about what I saw, two things. First of all, the core of this law in Australia is that it's voluntary and you have to be mentally competent, so it doesn't apply. In the Netherlands, which has the longest conversation about this anywhere in the world, they have an entirely different way of thinking about it, which is unbearable and untreatable suffering. And they have a a clinic called the Life Ending Clinic, which deals with what they call specialised cases, and that can include dementia. And I spent some time with the man who runs that clinic and then with a, a family who's the daughter of a woman who'd had dementia who had accessed the euthanasia laws. And even though they didn't know... I was talking to each of them. When I put their two stories together, I realised I had one story, which was, yes, it is possible in rare circumstances in the Netherlands to access that law, but you still have to prove you're mentally competent. So this woman had to go through incredible hoops. And, and the night before, her daughter, who still wasn't sure, heard the nurse say to her, tomorrow's the day, do, do you want to drink or do you want to be injected? And she heard her mother say, of course I want to drink. I'm always in charge of what I do. And she knew then this is what her mother wanted. But what the head of the Life Ending Clinic said was people in this situation have to make a choice. They have to make the choice to leave the ball before midnight. In other words, they have to choose to end their lives before it would naturally happen or they have to drift off into the grey. So I think it is I think it is a very difficult question. I don't think it's going to go away. I'm unsure about the idea of using advanced care directives for mm. dementia and Alzheimer's and this certainly makes me not popular amongst uh, people on my side of the ledger. And I'm unsure about it because I think that uh, you are then asking a doctor to act on something where they can't be sure that this is what the person wants and I'm not sure that is a fair or right thing to do. But because it is such a huge medical issue in our society, 
I think it's, is it the number one killer of Australians over 80? It's not going to go away and I think our society and, and all societies will be grappling with this. I mean, for the purposes of, of defining dementia, so does it begin... Because clearly you can't consent when you're in late stage, late stage dementia, so you'd need to be of sound mind, which would mean that you're in early stage dementia when your quality of life can be quite good in some cases for a number of years. Yeah, well, well that's, a, that's the thing about those kind of conditions. They're not medically sick, medically. I mean, mentally they are. I've got no nothing about that. But they're not medically sick such as myself. The dementia is not going to kill them. Well, it, w- it will, but over a long period of time. Oh, yes, I know, but yes. it's a, it's in a different stage altogether. And as, a, as, I mean, we've got the first stage now of the assisted dying. Now, whether that can include other things like dementia later on is going to be a subject to be debated over many years, I'm sure. And whether that comes in... I don't know, but at the moment, as as they said, you've got to go through the hoops. And if you can't answer all the questions to the doctors as to why you want to die, you won't get onto the program. It would be very hard to imagine it being applied to dementia. Would, Would you agree, Betty? I think it would be enormously hard simply because there is no... One of the things you have to have is a diagnosis and a prognosis. And the prognosis currently is six months as a maximum or up to 12 months if it's a neurodegenerative such as MND. Mm. So I just don't see how a doctor or a clinician of any type could come in and say, well, yes, dementia is certainly ultimately fatal, but they, the diagnosis, by the time they could give a diagnosis of less than six months or even less than 12 months, the person mm. wouldn't be in a position to actually be able to say what they wanted. And, I mean, I think the real thing is that this is to help the person, not to help their family watching them suffer. No. But to help them. And so it's got to be something that they can articulate, this is what I want. Well, they do articulate it in many instances beforehand. I mean, I'll say it right now. I would prefer to die than experience late-stage dementia. I can say it. It's now on the record. How that gets applied... And I know, I mean, part of part of getting voluntary assisted dying through in Victoria has been the safeguards have been very important at legitimising this legislation and how, how, how you could mesh safeguards with voluntary assisted dying in terms of late-stage dementia is problematic. Uh, Philip, I just... I, I wanted to tell the story of a friend of mine who wrote an article about this late last year about the quandary of dementia and voluntary assisted dying. His mother had dementia and on many occasions when he went to visit her, she would insist that he end her life. This happened a number of times, incredibly distressing for both of them. And he was writing about this, but then he wrote about an occasion when his mother had an infection and the hospital rang him up and asked him, they said, your mother's got an infection what would you like us to do about it? And he said, well, is the infection treatable? And they said, yes, infection's treatable with with antibiotics. What's the chance of success? Oh, the chance of success is fine. And so he did what people would do in that situation and said, well, treat it with the antibiotics. It was only later on that he realised that they were opening the door for him. Nothing explicit was said because I assume that would not be ethical. 
does this sort of thing happen often? Yes. Yes. So you, when you assess someone's treatment pathway, uh, you um, balance it against their quality of life. And we're not judgmental. Um, we, well, we try not to be the medical profession, but we speak to the patient and the family members and, and ask, do you want treatment? Now, Andrew said uh, quite eloquently that doctors are shy away from discussing that, you know, do you want to treat or don't you want to treat? In all my lectures, I always say it's harder not to treat than to treat. The easy pathway is to write the antibiotics and walk away and you know that antibiotics will fix it. The harder question, the real doctor will say, your loved one has been in a nursing home for eight years, they've become bed-bound, their quality of life is, is poor. How do you see it? Um, nature's way is they've got an infection. Uh, just because we've got the antibiotics, it doesn't necessarily have to give them. Uh, what would you like us to do? It's shared decision-making. And the law allows us to withhold that, 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 that treatment. Mm-hmm. I've got personal experience. My father had dementia. And I saw a very proud Italian man uh, not recognise his children or his grandchildren. Uh, and when he had a stroke in the nursing home, we were given that same question. Uh, let's take him to hospital. Um, looks like he's got pneumonia. But we elected to keep him at the nursing home with the nurses that he loved, that he knew for the last three or four years of his life and had palliative care there and let nature take its course. There's nature mm. and, then there's anti, you know, and then there's active treatment. Um, and you know what's right within yourself. Mm. So Philip's raised a really crucial point, which is the the third part of this conversation. There's doctors, there's the person in the bed, and then there's their family. And uh, one of the palliative care doctors, one of the pioneers of palliative care in Australia, who I've spoken to many times over the last few years, told me of a a patient of his, a woman who was in her 90s, who uh, was clearly dying, and the son wanted her to have an operation because he couldn't accept the thought that she might die. So please do something more, do something more. And this is the other part of the question, which is, you know, Betty talks about this. The fears of coercion happening under, under the Victorian law have proven not to be true, except in one way, there is coercion, and it's the other way. It's coercion from families, don't do this. It's coercion from doctors, you shouldn't do this. It's coercion from some institutions, we're gonna discourage you from doing this, or in a few instances, block you. The family's part in this conversation is a very big part of it. And in the assisted dying debate, there is an attempt, and you see it play out in parliaments, to make out that assisted dying is like some bright, shining line, Mm. that we never did this, now we are doing this. There is no bright, shining line in end-of-life care. There are the sorts of things that Philip's talking about happening in families, in hospitals, in medical clinics around Australia every day of every week. Mm. And they're not easy and... It doesn't matter what law you write, there's always going to be grey. Yeah, that stands in contrast, doesn't it, Betty, to the kind of the cliché, if you like, the stereotype of the kids who are pushing the, the parents toward an early death so they can get hold of the uh, the inheritance. <laughs> the house, uh, the um, house. Like, I, I hear this all the time. It's not there. Uh, if anything, I see the lung ones, they're conflicted. You know, they, they, they're supporting their, their, their loved one but they're not happy about it either. So uh, I, I see the conflict. It's, uh, I've never seen coercion. Jill Hennessy, I'm not sure Jill's here tonight, but she's one of the people responsible for this law passing, responded to that scenario of using this law to coerce someone to die to get your hands on the house. She said, it would be harder than Ocean's Eleven to use this law to do that. <laughs> and it's true. If you wanted to do that, you wouldn't use a law which is the most scrutinised area of medical practice to do it. 
Can I say that what we get in terms of feedback from um, the contact person, which is often a child of the, a child or a sibling, and they refer to the fact that, you know, they didn't really want to, their parent or their sibling to do this, but they agreed to support them on the basis that that was what the person wanted. And by the end of it, they talk about the fact that it was just a wonderful experience mm-hmm. in terms of it was with grace and dignity and smiles on faces. And people who really aren't supportive to begin with often end up supportive if they've travelled on that dis- that journey with that person. Have you thought about this, Ron, about the, the moment and uh, what that will involve, who will be around you and, and so on? It's still, a, it's still a bit of a conflict, whether I do it by myself just with the doctor or whether I have family and friends around. I really haven't made a decision. Is it fair on other people to watch you pass away or not? Because the um, mixture you get, you've got 30 mils of it you have to swallow, and within four minutes you go to sleep. After you've gone to sleep, it could be half an hour or more before you actually pass away. Now, do you want people there when that happens, or would you rather let them come in the room afterwards? And it's something I haven't made up my mind which way I'm going to go. I've got no problems with taking it. I'm not afraid of it. I'm not frightened. And it's something I've looked, I'm looked forward to, of course, mm. <laughs> but um, it's, it's something I knew was going to happen one way or the other. And this is a good way for me. I've got a choice and I've got an option. Mm. I've still got that option that I may not take it. That's my choice. Mm. And I think this is... The other good point about the dying, assisted dying program, everyone has got that choice. And choice for the end of life should be something that everyone should have. You hear some uh, beautiful stories that you rely on your podcast, Andrew, of the end. Perhaps you, could, perhaps you can share uh, one of those stories, uh, uh, if, you, if you can recall the details. I'll do this as quickly as I can. I've made these two podcast series five years apart and the first one I made was before this law existed and I sat and spent quite a lot of time with and I I think some of his family members are here tonight, uh, palliative care nurse Ray Gottbold, known as Velvet Ray for his gentle way with the dying. He had cancer. He didn't want to die in palliative care because he'd seen what the end could be like for his particular cancer. He had an illegal drug called Nembatal which he could drink when the time was right for him. But like most people, Ray uh, clung to life. He didn't want to farewell his family and it, because it's hard to do that. It's really hard to do it. And he hung on and he hung on and he hung on till it was too late, even though he knew what would happen. And the description of his family of his last hours, uh, his wife who's a nurse said, I've never seen anyone more distressed. His older daughter, Ella, I can still hear her saying, I will never forget the look on his face ever. Five years later, I talked to this man, Phil, who I mentioned before, Lucky Phil. Cancer also, like Ray, he couldn't swallow, so he could be injected by a doctor, another oncologist. And his last moments um, with his family, his daughter and his wife on either side stroking his arm, there was laughter and Phil's last words to his family were, be happy. 
and his death was peaceful. And I contrast those two and it's the clearest way I can explain to somebody what the absence of the law means and what the, the need for the law is. And that's where we'll have to leave our discussion on voluntary assisted dying. It was organised by the Wheeler Centre. Our speakers were Andrew Denton, Betty King, Ron Poole and Philip Parenti. Their details can be found on the Big Ideas website. A special thanks to Ron Poole, who, as you heard, had deeply held beliefs about voluntary assisted dying. Sadly, Ron died on the evening of April the 26th, less than a week after this discussion took place. Our thoughts are with his loved ones. Ron also features in Andrew Denton's podcast, Better Off Dead. You can listen to it on the Wheeler Centre website. We'll put a link on our homepage. If this conversation has raised any issues for you, there are many resources and support services available, including a 24-7 crisis support phone line from Lifeline, 131 114. That's it for today. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye for now.